0: All right, good morning. Wasn't that time of worship just sweet? You know, and that's what we can have tonight, too. As we get back together again, we'll uh, just worship the Lord and just get lost and um, forget about ourselves, just focus on Jesus. Let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 12. Last week, we last couple of weeks actually we've been looking at uh, the death of Lazarus and the difference between the significance of of Jesus raising him from the grave and also the difference between Lazarus's resurrection and the resurrection that Jesus uh, happened to Jesus and also the resurrection that is awaiting all of us. And we looked at those uh, the resurrection last week. This morning, however, we're going to be looking at Jesus as he approaches the finish line. And I titled this, message, this morning's message, Approaching the Finishing Line, but really, uh, that's just part of, of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, because this morning, we're going to be looking at Mary, uh, Lazarus' sister. She was so amazingly blown away by Jesus' love and, and the fact that she raised her brother from the grave after he'd been dead for four days. And just the worship that this woman had and demonstrated very clearly. We're going to be looking at that and Lord willing, time willing, we'll look at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem just a little less than a week before he would be crucified. So as we finish, as we continue in the Gospel of John, we're going to notice that the the chapters, uh, especially chapter 13 through chapter 20, are going to be Uh, recording events that happen within uh, about three days. From the moment that the the, the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, and then the the day, the couple of days in the tomb, and then on the third day rising. And so those events in chapters 13 through 20 are really condensed. It's really speaking of that Passion Week, and which we're in right now as we talk about Jesus' triumphal entry, that, that moment from when Lazarus was raised from the grave, and then finally now as we get into that final week, it's going to be really interesting. And the Bible has a lot to say about that because the details are so specific. And, and a lot of these things, many of them, uh, have been foretold to us in the Scriptures in the Old Testament. And so let's look at, uh, we're going to look at the first, uh, Lord willing, the first 19 verses of chapter 12. Let's just read them together. And again, this was after uh, the raising of Lazarus. It says, then six days before the Passover, and by the way, this Passover is the very last Passover that Jesus will enjoy um, There were three Passovers that were mentioned in the Gospel of John. This is the third one. This is the one where he will be crucified. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made Jesus a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped, the feet with her, wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why has this fragrant oil not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. And Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept... Th- This for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but with me you do not always have. And now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not only for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But notice this. This is interesting, isn't it? (laughs) But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people had also um, for this reason, the people also met him because they had heard that he had done this sign, and the Pharisees therefore said among themselves. You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. And would to God that the world was going after him. But the, 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 the days that we live in, we find that that's not really the case. Many people are choosing anything. They're, they're flocking to anything except for Christ. Now, many have come to Christ and praise the Lord for that. But the natural man doesn't desire the things of God. It, it's, it's a miracle that any of us are here in this room that God has reached down into our hearts and saved us. Would the God that the world was going after Jesus, because that's his heart. His will is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants to see everyone come to him, because he loves those whom he created. Why would he create something and then throw it away like refuse? No, he created with the intent of having a relationship Not that God needed the relationship, but He desires when people like you and I, volitionally of our own conscience and our own volition, we love Him back in thanksgiving for what He has already done for us. In fact, the Bible says that before the foundation of the earth, Jesus was slain. The plan was already in God's heart and mind. The whole thing was already prepared, like a table, like a buffet. God knew what was going to happen. He wasn't surprised. But he was ready, and when the time was right, he spoke that seed into Mary's womb, and she bore the Son of God, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, to take our sin upon himself, and that by believing in him, we might have life through him, and that we might live eternally in heaven with him, instead of the alternate. And yes, there is a hell. Many churches don't like to talk about that, but hey, it's true. There is a place called hell, and for those who reject Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell. That's a bitter pill, wouldn't you agree? And that's why God says, it's not my will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I need to come to repentance. I need to turn from my sin. I was born in sin. You ever notice a baby, when it's born, how selfish it is and how how crude it can be, especially if you have siblings? My family and I have been watching the, uh, America's Funniest Home Videos, and they show these videos of these little kids, and they you know, they got lollipops or ice cream, and the one kid will start to lick it, and the, the, his sibling doesn't have one, and so he looks over, and he hits the ice cream. It falls all over the place, and it's, it's just baked into this, into this nature of ours, just to do wicked things. You don't have to teach a child how to do evil things. They're naturally selfish because the sin nature is within us. That's what Jesus came to redeem. That's what he came to save us from is the effect of that. Because there's only one place for that, and it's not a good place. That's why he came on a rescue mission. So this morning, we're going to be looking, uh, as we have read, at this event in Mary's life and in Jesus' life. And the first 11 verses really speak to this extravagant worship that Mary bestowed upon Jesus. And verses 12 through 19 are Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, fulfilling age-old prophecies, specifically Daniel 9. And Lord willing, we'll get to that if I'm not too (laughs) long-winded. Because this is a really fantastic thing we have before us this morning. I'm so excited about it. So let's get right into it. Uh, notice in verse 1 it says, Then six days before the Passover Jesus came to Bethany where Je- where Lazarus was, who had been dead. Notice, he was dead. He didn't swoon. No, he died, and he was in the grave four days, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Again, this Passover would be the um, six days prior to the Passover, would be this, this time where Jesus would uh, come into Jerusalem, the six days, notice in verse 2, And then there, there they made Jesus a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then Mary, she takes a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And I love that wherever you see Mary of Bethany, wherever you see her in the Scripture, you find her either worshiping Jesus or at his feet, listening intently to him. And may we take that same posture as Mary. Now, Jesus loved Martha, too. Martha was a whole different personality. And Do you think that God wasn't happy and pleased with her? No, he was. He was. He loved her. Mary was the busybody. Any busybodies here in the room this morning? Yes, she was a busybody, and the Lord loved her too. She's in glory. But Mary loved Jesus, and she was just like, you know what? I'll let my sister tend to the dishes and make the cooking. I'm going to sit at his feet. I'm going to hear everything he's got to tell me. And I'm going to pull out my iPod or my iPhone, and I'm going to record him i going to record him, and then when I'm at night, when I'm laying, and I'm getting ready to go to bed, I'm going to listen to his words again, and let it soothe my soul. Wouldn't that be something? To have a recording of Jesus' words, literally, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it's recorded for us in, in Scripture, but to hear his voice, what was his voice like? Have you thought about that? To just actually hear his inflections, and the compassion, the love, and the depth in his voice, and it would probably just kill us in a good way. I love that, though. This anointing at Bethany is recorded in three different gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark and and John. But we're looking at this one in John, and Matthew's gospel, actually, of this same exact account, tells us that this event took place in the house of Simon the Tanner, Um, John doesn't tell us that, but Matthew's gospel does. Remember that the gospels are a a conglomerate of Jesus' life. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we we call them the synoptic gospels because they cover similar events in Jesus' life. But John's gospel was written after those three had already been written, and John cherry-picked certain things out of the life of Jesus, compiled them into a book but led by the Spirit of God to show and to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by having our faith in him we might be saved, that we might have life in his name. That was John's purpose. So John doesn't tell us exactly where it was, but the other gospels do. Matthew and Luke especially. And it says to us in Matthew 26 that, and when Jesus was in Bethany of the house of Simon the leper, so we know that that's where he was. He wasn't in Lazarus' house. For some reason, they were at another house. But this event here in John chapter 12 is not to be confused with an, an, another event that has very similar details. And it's the event in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. It's, it's similar to what Mary did, but it's worth looking at for the context of what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to read to you. You can write the script reference down, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to read it to you because it'll make sense once we do. In Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 7, verse 36, it says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house. We know because this is a Pharisee's house, not Simon the Tanner's house, two separate events. And he sat down to eat, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, probably a a prostitute, she comes, and when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and she stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet, anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he spoke within himself, saying, This man, if, if he were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Of course, the Pharisee wasn't. He was perfect. <laughs> and Jesus answered and said unto him, knowing his thoughts, He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Teacher, say it. He said, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when he had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, you've rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman. And now think of this in your head. When I read the Bible, I like to actually think about who's in front of Jesus, who is he speaking to. So he's talking to Simon, but then he looks at Mary. Or he looks at this woman. I'm sorry, not Mary. This is a different lady. He looks at her. He says, Do you see this woman, Simon? And he looks at the woman. I've entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. She gave you gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom much, to whom little, is forgiven? The same loves little. The same loves little. And then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those at the table with him began to say with themselves, Who is this that can forgive sins? Uh, It's God. I don't know if you guys got the text message. It's God. Only God can forgive sins. And yes, God is there with them. The Logos become flesh. The Word become flesh. Sitting there with them. Now notice that this passage in Luke and the passage that we just read in John chapter 12 this morning, that both of these ladies are expressing their worship in extravagant ways. Extravagant ways. This anointing oil that was used was very, very costly. Very costly. And the woman in Luke 7, she was a sinner. She had been forgiven much. And Mary, in John chapter 12 this morning, uh, for, for she was very thankful because Jesus has raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. And it's probable that he was their provider as well, Mary and Martha. It makes no mention of her parents, their parents at all. Their parents probably have died, and now Lazarus is the breadwinner in the family. He's the one supporting his two sisters. And you can imagine how thankful this lady is to know that her brother's been raised. And she takes that ointment and anoints him. Very costly. Notice that Mary's worship was not convenient. It wasn't chintzy. Rather, it was costly. It was extravagant. This spikenard that that she poured over him is an East Indian plant which yields a juice or a a, a juice which the ancients used. And sometimes they mixed it with other things, but it was a, a very precious, precious ointment. And can I tell you this morning that at the heart of worship, At the heart of worship, true worship of God is sacrifice. At the heart of true worship is sacrifice. If my worship becomes rote, if it becomes convenient, it may not be worship at all. It may be worship, but it also may not. The quality of my worship may be beggarly and poor. And God can receive you know, anything, but you know what? The, the heart of worship is sacrifice. Never forget that, folks. And I had to ask myself this week, what is the quality of my worship? And I'm not just talking about my singing to God. The quality of my worship, what, what have I sacrificed to God? He doesn't require me to... To, to die in, in in the physical sense, he wants us to live. He wants to be us a living sacrifice. But what is my worship really like? Is there anything that I sacrifice to God any longer, or has my worship become so convenient it's just writing a check and it's very convenient? It's in fact, I'll write my check after all my bills are paid. I write that, and then I um, after and then whatever I haven't spent on myself, I give to the Lord. But or or is my worship, and it's not all about money either. God doesn't care about our money, but it is a good indicator of where our heart, heart is at. And What about our life? The, the things that we do with our life. Are we giving our life? Uh, is our life devoted to him? We'll do anything for him? Or is our life just about getting a job and getting married and having kids and then, and then after our kids move out of the house, we move down to Florida and play golf? Is that what our life is about? Or is there a sacrifice? What is the quality of of my worship. And remember that worship is about Jesus. It's for Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's to Jesus. And we can certainly be blessed in our worship of Jesus Christ, but remember it is about Him. It is not about us. It's not about me feeling good about worship. It's not that at all. I've seen the three young women who lead worship here at the church go through some very difficult physical, spiritual, emotional duress, and they still get up on this platform every week and they lead us in worship. That's an amazing thing. And I know that all too well myself because there are times when I, never, when I don't feel like worshiping and I worship Him regardless of how I'm feeling. See, we, we live in a, a culture that is all about feelings. I don't feel, if I don't feel it, then I'm not going to do it. And God says, well, would you do it if you didn't feel it? (laughs) Because that's where worship begins, is when you do it because of the one who is worthy to receive. We do it not because of how we feel, folks. We have to get away from this idea that worship is, if if I don't feel good, then I didn't worship. No, sometimes you may not feel good at all. And God says, that's the best worship I've ever seen out of your life. When you were at the very pit, and instead of just cashing in your chips and saying, I'm done. No, you worship me because you, were, you weren't feeling that great, because your circumstances were horrible, and yet you worship me. God looks upon that and says, that's sweet worship. That's like a sweet fragrance coming before me because it's a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice of praise. In Hebrews, it tells this, The author says we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also noticed that this, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. He suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp. Notice this, America, (laughs) let us. Go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. What? Bearing his reproach? Me? An American Christian? (laughs) No, it's gravy train. It has nothing to do with it. I'm not going to suffer the reproach of Christ. Are you serious? I'm an American. But he says... Let's go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer what? The sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him. Giving thanks to him. Sometimes I don't feel like worshiping, but worshiping when I feel like it the least is the best. It doesn't mean that your other worship, when you're feeling good, doesn't matter. It does. But if I'm always seeking to feel good and only call that true worship when I'm feeling good, I've totally misunderstood what worship is about because it has nothing to do with you and I. We're just the ones offering it back to him for what he has already done. In fact, he is the one who instigates it He's the one who uh, initiates it, and then the Spirit of God in us worships Him for what He's already done. We are not in debt to Him, or excuse me, we are, we, we're indebted to Him, but He doesn't owe us anything. Rather, for the rest of our lives, it ought to be about glorifying and serving Him. In Jeremiah chapter 33, God uh, spoke to Israel before their Babylonian captivity concerning their future blessings after their captivity, also looking forward even into the millennial kingdom. It says, thus says the Lord, verse 10, Again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate, without man and without beast, in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness. These are the things that will be heard. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of the people who say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. Good, for his mercy endures forever, and of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as it is as at the first, says the Lord. You remember the captivity of Judah in Jerusalem, that when they returned from their seventy-year captivity, many of the old people who were old enough. And, and survive that captivity. you got 70 years, remember that. So those who had returned were, were old or they were young because they were born in Babylon. But the ones who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple, they wept over the temple that had been rebuilt because it wasn't nearly as glorious as Solomon's temple. And those who were born in Babylon came back and they'd never seen Solomon's temple because it had been destroyed. And now they see this new temple and they're like blown away it tells us in Ezra chapter 3, it says, When they began to build this temple after the Babylonian captivity, that the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, and the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising, notice, and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Isn't God good? I love the fact that he's so good and anyone who has anything to say of the contrary is missing misunderstanding, even the dark things, the difficult things that you've experienced in your life, God will work those to the good to those who love him. He's going to work it to the good, and perhaps he's going to do it so that you can comfort others with the comfort that you were comforted of God, because how can you minister to somebody else and say, oh, brother, God's going to be there unless you've been there yourself. And when you have been there yourself, you can say, I know that God is going to get you through it because I've been through it myself, and God is faithful. He's faithful. So even in the dark days, the difficulties, the the things that just tear our hearts out, even those things, give glory to him and thanks. And say, God, I don't understand it, but I thank you for the the crucible you put me in. Because I've been drawn closer to you, and now I can minister to others with authority. Where before it was just, oh, I'll pray for you, brother. God bless. Be warmed and filled. (laughs) No, you can say, hey, let's go have some coffee. Let's get into a room together and cry and pray together. Talk about this. I want to share with you what God has done, how he's, how he's filled my cup, and how he's going to fill your cup. It doesn't feel like it right now. It feels like everything's coming to an end. It feels like you're hanging on to the thread, and you're just dangling, and you're just like, oh, God, if you don't do something, I'm I'm done, I'm done. Everything is done. My marriage, my finances, everything. I'm going to lose my house and you're hanging there by the thread. And you can say to somebody, you know what, that's probably exactly where God wants you to be. Cry out to him. Ask him to come to your aid. And he does. But you don't know what you got until it's gone, right? Think of our country. You know, even 20 years ago, I was completely oblivious to all the things that, are, that were happening in the world. And now as I'm older and as I'm seeing the things change so rapidly, it makes me thankful the more, all the more, as I, as I consider the things that are happening. But the greatest worship is worship that costs us. And I'm not just talking about finances. It could, it could cost you Time. It could cost you, it could be an investment of your life in doing something. It could be doing something for somebody else. And in that way, you serve the Lord as well. But true worship is that which we are willing to give. Why? Because of the love, the gratitude, the indebtedness that we have towards the one to whom it is being offered to. There's a, a wonderful painting by a gentleman by the name of Francesco di uh, Zerberin. I'm probably butchering his name. It's in the Prado Museum. I've actually seen this photo myself live in that, in, that, in that museum many years ago. But this photo reminds me exactly what worship is. An innocent lamb, a lamb of the first year without blemish, tied and bound to the altar, ready to be sacrificed. Sacrificed. It was a sacrifice. It was worship. And when we think of the the greatest act of worship, it was Jesus on the cross. Yes, God in the flesh who did no wrong, who had no sin in him, willingly taking the price, willingly allowing himself to be bound to that cross, and then crucified, a most horrible death, the worst kind of death there is. He was willing to do that for you and I. The greatest worship service took place on a cross at Calvary. It was selfless. It had nothing to do with feeling good. And that doesn't mean that we can't feel good when we worship, because we can. But I think in America, we, we always think about feeling good and that I didn't really worship unless the band was really hot. And I say that because there are some who have left this church for that reason. There are some that leave other churches for that reason. Well, the music, you know, the, the lights weren't happening. Um, I didn't see the smoke roll off the platform. I didn't see the cameras, you know, and the guys in the black suits, you know, zooming in on the guitar solo, you know. I mean, all of these things happen in churches. And if I don't get that, if I don't get, if I don't get that, I'm out of here. <laughs> and that, that's, that's happening more than you think. And people don't know what worship is. I'm learning what worship is. I'm learning. I've learned a lot, but I'm learning. But American Christians, for the most part, we have no idea what worship really is. They think of a big band, and the music's pumping, and man, my emotions are grooving, and there's nothing wrong with that. They look at that, and they're like, where's the exit? But that's the reality of American Christianity, for the most part. Not everywhere, of course, but for the most part. You remember in Genesis chapter 22, it says, It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, and he said to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, and he says, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac. By the way, his only son Isaac was the one that God made the promises to, that through his seed, all the world would be blessed. In fact, through him, the Messiah would be born through Isaac's seed. Not not, um, Ishmael, no, but through Isaac. Through Isaac, my promises, God says, are going to be fulfilled in that man through his lineage. And now God tells Abraham, now take your only son and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will tell you, the Temple Mount that we know today. That's where it was. So Abraham rose quickly in the morning and he saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes, saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to, the, to his young man, notice this, stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder and worship. (laughs) And we will come back to you. There was something about Abraham's understanding of this event. Something interesting. Hebrews tells us what it is. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. In the great hall of faith, what does it say? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. The Lord God gave Abraham a taste of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Remember, Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh, in the mount of the Lord. It shall be seen. What shall be seen? Well, the actual working out of the very thing that Isaac and, and Abraham went through. As Abraham raised that knife to plunge into his son's chest, God says, stop, Abraham. There's a lamb. There's a ram over there. Go take him. And Abraham realized then there's something significant about what's happening here. And that's why he called the place Jehovah-Jireh. and the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. On this very same spot, nearly 2,000, or actually quite a few thousand, a few thousand years later, God the Father would take his own son. Except it wouldn't be. There would be no angel stopping him as they drove those spikes through his wrists. No, that was purposeful. That was first-degree murder. Premeditated murder by God the Father. for a reason, that you and I could be saved. And so Abraham knew that this was a worship service. There was something about this very different. And see, how and who we worship is important. And you know, God will even hold the Old Testament priests that are dead and gone, he will hold them accountable for their faithfulness or lack thereof and reward them accordingly. Even in the millennium when the Old Testament saints are resurrected, we talked about this the last couple weeks, God will reward the line of Zadok, the priest of Levi, in allowing them to serve him in the holy place in the new temple in Jerusalem in the millennial reign." And but the other priests who were unfaithful, they will have a very limited service. Let me read to you what it says in Ezekiel chapter 44. This is really interesting. It says in the Levites, and this is God speaking while Ezekiel's writing this in Babylon in captivity, and he's telling them what's going to happen in the future. And he says this, and the Levites, God says, who went far from me. In fact, it was Part of the reason why they were led into captivity because of their idolatry. The priest should have stood up and done something and said, We're going to hold the line and not allow us to continue any further. But the people said, No, no, we want to worship Baal and we want to do these other things. And they're like, Oh, okay. And so they do it. And God says, Holding you accountable for that, brothers. He loves them. And evidently they're going to be saved but they made some really huge errors. Notice what it says. Yeah, he says, And the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity, yet they shall be ministers, notice, by God's grace, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them, Notice the pronouns here. Yes, it's okay for pronouns in this context. <laughs> they will stand before the people, before them to minister to them because they ministered to them before their idols and cause the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore, I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord God, that they shall bear their iniquity. They shall not come near to me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that it has, has to be done in it. But notice in verse 15, let me read it to you. But. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me, to minister to me. And they shall stand before me, to offer to me the fat of the blood, the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. Yes, even in the millennial temple there will be sacrifices in memorial, not because they're needed to be made, because Jesus suffered once and for all for the sin of man, but they will continue to have offerings in memorial of those things that, we would never, that they would never forget, that we would never forget. But they shall enter my sanctuary, God says, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. Do you see the difference? So there, who it is and what, how we worship and who we worship is a big deal because there were some who led Israel astray. They weren't on, they weren't faithful to the Lord. And God in his grace is still going to allow them to serve, but they're not going to be able to they're going to serve the people. But those who stayed true to God are going to serve him. And that may not be a big deal to you right now. But trust me, when we're in heaven, when the church is raptured and we're in glory, we're going to have a whole different understanding and perspective of this. And we will have wished, oh, I wished I would have stopped playing games. I wish I would have given the Lord my, my whole life. And whatever you do, you don't, you don't have to go into the ministry, like, like say I'm in the ministry or whatever like that. Wherever God has called you, be faithful in that place. And give to Him. Give to Him. And it, you, you can give in many ways. You can give of your time. You can give of uh, uh, you know whatever you desire. I'm not here trying to shake you like, Some people try to grab the church and hold them upside down and shake them. No, there's so much more things that are worth than money, okay? Our lives are more important than money, okay? This is not about money. It's about worship. And this is why it's good for us to examine our hearts. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointing the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. I wonder what that smell smells like. Have you ever been in a place where you have sensed something, you know, by smelling or tasting that was so unique and you really liked it. It was something totally opposite from our American diet and our taste that we normally have. If you've been to Israel or if you come with us hopefully next year when we go again, you're going to smell and taste things that you've never smelled or tasted before. And I think of the aroma of those sense, And I love what it says here in 2 Corinthians. It says, Now thanks be to God who, is always, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge to every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Jesus among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the, are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient? For these things, does your life have the fragrance of Christ? Does my life have the fragrance of Christ? Do our families, do our neighbors, do those in our workplace know that we belong to Christ? Is there evidence of it? Do they observe the love and the grace and the compassion and yet gravity and holiness in us? Or are we laughing and doing all the things that everybody else does? Is our life a fragrance? Is our life a living sacrifice? In everything we say and do. Is it? That's a good question for myself and for you as well. And I, I, and I have to be honest. Quietly before the Lord, I need to be honest and say, Lord, where is my worship? How am I worshiping you? Am I really worshiping you at all? Or is it just out of convenience? And again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that any of those things can't be worshiped, because they can be but sometimes i'm 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 challenged by my worship because sometimes i've made my made it so convenient for myself i've made it so convenient that there's no longer any sacrifice in my heart at all it's just a business transaction does your life have the fragrance of Christ. In the book of Acts it, when the apostles were originally arrested after the day of Pentecost it says that Peter filled with the spirit Said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, stone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and then it says and then they saw the boldness of peter and john and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men and they marveled and they realized that they had been with jesus the fragrance of christ was all over them it was it was all over them so much to the extent that they they had to take you know these guys are completely different Does the world see me different, or do they just see me in with the fray? Uh, Do I stand out at all anymore? Am I salt and light to the earth, or have I become assimilated into this perverse culture into which we live? It breaks my heart to see how many Christians have got such rotten, filthy mouths, and to hear them on, on, on social media just so hateful. What a horrible thing. It ought not to be family of God. It ought not to be, Christian. I get angry with the rest of them, but you know what? I try to keep my mouth shut as much as I can. What this world needs is Christ. It doesn't need my venom because Christ is the solution. He is the solution. May our lives demonstrate that fragrance of Christ in all that we say and do. And I like what it says in, uh, excuse me, in, uh, in Colossians. I'll just read the 17th verse. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks. And really, we get back to our text this morning, and that's really what this is all about, is giving thanks. And what a, a great thing for us to consider as we come upon Thanksgiving next Thursday. We can give thanks anytime. And We do. To me, Thanksgiving is a way of life. I like to give thanks in everything. I'm not perfect in it, but I want to give thanks in everything. Every single day I want to be thankful. It doesn't take one day, but I'm glad that at least you know, corporately in America we have one day where we say, you know what, this day we're going to give thanks to God for all that He has done. And may this Thanksgiving be the best Thanksgiving ever in this country. May it be the best and may it revive us revive the church do it before then lord do it today don't wait until thanksgiving day revive us now that we could be thankful and a holy people that are to go out into all the world every place where we go let's open our mouths about the goodness and the grace and the forgiveness of god we need the baptism of the holy spirit folks i need it and you need it as well ask god say lord as you did in the first century church, light me up. Whenever I go, wherever I go, light me up, Lord. You empower me. I don't care when it is. That's your business. I can't make it happen, but I want to be ready that when you do, I am just being faithful to you, and I'm opening my mouth, and I have no fear of man. No fear. In fact, that's one of the hallmarks of being baptized with the Spirit of God. You saw it in Peter. He was standing up in front of those who had killed Jesus, and he says, I don't care about any of you. This is the truth. And their eyes and their jaw hit the ground and their eyes bugged out of their head because they realized, oh my goodness, there's something going on here I can't explain. And that's the Spirit of God. Anointing a man, anointing his words, that is the difference. Peter could have said those same words on another day where God was vacant and it would have fallen flat on the ground and they probably would have killed him. But not that day. That day they were all arrested They wanted to arrest him, but he arrested them through the Spirit of God. I love that, don't you? See, that's what our world needs today, is to be arrested by the Spirit of God. Arrested by the love of God. Not in some anger and frustration, no. Arrested by the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. But notice in verse 4 in our text again. So what we've talked about so far is worship. Mary, thankful, so thankful for raising her brother. She just poured it out. And by, do you know something? 300 denarii, you get one denarii back in that time frame. You get one denarii for a day's wage. So whatever it is that you make in a day, that would be one denarii. So 300 denarii would be roughly a little less than a year's wages. And this is the cost of the ointment that she poured out upon Jesus. Extravagant, yes. Yes. It was extravagant. And the Lord says, let her do it. Because that was one of the most magnificent things that's been recorded in the scripture. That kind of worship. Not even concerned. Maybe she was saving it up to give to her child when she passed on and she's like, this is a precious ointment and you know, pass it down through the family. She says, "Nope, this is the time. I'm gonna thank God with what I have. But notice in verse 4, and we'll we're gonna take communion here in a few moments. But one of his disciples, and I love John, this is so typical, this is so exciting about John. You know, the other gospels don't tell us who it is. You know, Matthew and Mark, and and they don't tell us who it is, but John says, no, it was Judas. <laughs> But one of his disciples, you can read the other accounts in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. There's no mention of Judas. But John says, no, it was Judas. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. Now, Iscariot's not his last name, by the way. Judas Iscariot means many people were named Judas because of Judas Maccabeus. Delivering the, the, the children of Israel from oppression, right? From the Romans, between the Testaments. Everybody named their kid Judas, but nobody does anymore. But Judas Iscariot means Judas of the town of Iscariot. That town, he's from Iscariot. There's an actually shortened term, and I forgot what the name is, but he's Judas of Iscariot. It'd be like Rob of Penfield. There's a lot of Rob's. You have to go, you know, something else. But anyway, the idea is that it was Judas. But why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. Amazing that Jesus would allow this man, who he knew was a thief, to be the one that he would put in charge of the box. You and I would have grabbed the box and and says, and if I was Jesus, I would have looked at, went through the line of the guys, and knowing, you know, having foreknowledge, I would look at the 12 guys and go, um, I'm going to give the box to John, because I know John, he loves me, and he's not going to be but God doesn't care about the money. He gave Judas every opportunity to change and to turn, didn't he? He gave him every opportunity. He even went to the extent of giving him the money box and saying, all right, be faithful with it. The test is on. The test is on. The test is on for you and I as well. What are we going to do? But Jesus said, let her alone, for she has kept this for my burial." And in fact, in Matthew's gospel, it says this. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached to the whole world, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And as we read that, that prophecy is coming true, isn't it? Because we just read it. Jesus made sure that this awesome worship that she had done, Mary had done to Jesus, made sure to memorialize it forever forever. He says, For the poor you always have with you, but me you don't always have. And now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not only for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests, they plotted to kill Lazarus, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed. Can you imagine that? Think of the hypocrisy of that. Think of the, how weird that is. A man dies. Jesus raises him from the grave. And because the religious leaders are now jealous, because they were powerless, Jesus raises the man from the grave, and they're like, you know what, we can't stand this anymore. We want to kill Jesus, but we want to kill him too. You're going to put up, wait, I mean, think of the the yo-yo that Lazarus is. Dead, alive, not dead, and then he's going to be resurrected again. I mean, think of the craziness of that. But see, isn't that man, what he doesn't understand, what he can't know... He immediately wants to kill. And that's usually the, the state of man. What we don't understand, what we, don't, what we fear. What we fear, what we don't understand is the first thing we try to put an end to. They didn't understand the power of God. They didn't understand that Jesus is God. They didn't believe it. They wanted to put him to death. They didn't understand it. They feared him because he was bad for business. <laughs> he was bad for business. People were going after Jesus now. And these guys are like, where's our tithing going to come from? I won't be able to get my robe dry cleaned this week. (laughs) But it's for, because of Jesus. In fact, this morning as we take communion, it's because of this sacrifice of Christ for you and me. Think of the love of God. While we were yet sinners, greater love has no man than this, than that he lays down his life for his friends. And, and God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what the table is all about. We come in remembrance of him. We do this, we take the bread and the cup in remembrance of his death until he comes his death and his resurrection, but his death. Because if he didn't die, then we would still be in our sins. And if he didn't rise from the grave, we would still be in our sins because then the Bible would be lying about something that it said was true, that God would raise him from the grave. Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not leave my soul in hell or in the grave, but be raised. And so if the worship team could come on up, and as we are worshiping the Lord, please come up and grab the uh, elements and bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them together after the worship, okay? It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Amen. That night before Jesus was crucified, he took the, the bread and he broke it, and he passed it to his disciples, and he says, This is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it, and, 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 and do this in remembrance. Of me, And as we take this, uh, this bread, we think of how Jesus' body was broken for us. And so let's partake. And he took the chalice of wine and he passed it around to his disciples. And he said, this is the, the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant. that our sins would be forgiven, that we would be reconciled to a holy God through Jesus' blood. And this blood, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, and take it and drink it and do this in remembrance of me. And so let's do that. May the Lord do a great work in all of us this week. And I pray that you consider, you know, as you read this chapter over again, we didn't get to the triumphal entry at I knew that I probably wouldn't get there. But just think about worship. Think about your worship. Think about, I'm going to think about my worship of God. And let it challenge you. Let it challenge you. Again, no one's trying to coerce anybody. There, there are churches that do that. We don't do that. And, and I don't believe in that. But every now and then we have to be reminded of what real worship is. And much of the time it has nothing to do with money, okay? so don't, it, it has to do with a life that's surrendered. But it takes into account everything, our whole entire being. Everything, everything should not be touched by this challenge of worship. Everything should be allowed to be challenged. And would you go through that challenge with me this week? Especially as we give thanks and just begin to thank God for all that he's done and just to just to worship Him. And I pray that you'll join us tonight. Would you come out? Bring your families. And let's just gather together and let's just get lost in worship. We'll have a short message, but we'll just just worship Jesus Christ. Come out and join us tonight, will you?